With MailChimp, you get more than a URL. You get an all-in-one marketing platform to help drive sales. With things like data-driven recommendations and powerful automation tools. Get started today at MailChimp.com slash smart marketing. MailChimp, built for growing businesses. We did it again. Verizon was just named America's most reliable network by Root Metrics for the 16th time in a row. Proving once again that nobody builds networks like Verizon builds networks. That's why we're building 5G right. That's why there's only one best network. Verizon. Best and most reliable based on root metrics reports from second half 2013 to first half 2021 of three operators on all network types combined. Not specific to 5G networks. is Who Killed Teresa, and I'm your host, John Allure. And uh, for the next little while, we're going to focus on a series of cases from the late 80s, 1990s, specifically the, uh, the murders of uh, Liette Gibb, Sophie Landry, Chantal Rachon, Valérie Dappé, uh, Marie-Ève uh, Larivier, uh, Melanie Cabet, uh, Marie Chantal Desjardins, and Jalil uh, Campo. Um, <clears throat> and today's focus is uh, 1987 uh, in the cases of Liette Gibb and uh, Sophie Land, uh, Landry. I'd like to first begin with um, a little uh, house housekeeping. Um, talked about a book deal, Random House. Um, I got a uh, email from Random House this week, uh, and it says, uh, "Happy New Year, John." Um, uh, we're going to put the uh, project through the official channers, channels and uh, going to uh, get you an offer together next week. I really do think there's a powerful book in your story, and it's one we'd be very proud to publish. Greatly appreciate your patience, etc., etc. Signed, so-and-so, he's the, he's the head of the true crime division at uh, Random House Canada. <clears throat> so, um, exciting. Um, but as I said before, there's a caveat to that. And the caveat is uh, the level to which I can discuss the 1970s cases um, in, in detail, which is um, essentially none. <clears throat> For... Uh, for instance, uh, there was a there was a development uh, this week uh, that occurred quite something quite potentially explosive, having to do um, with the cases in the seventies. Um, 
not not something that I uh, developed. Um, actually, a, a listener and a longtime friend and, and confident in, in, uh, in these matters uh, brought it to my attention, and um, it's uh, it's explosive, and I can't say anything. <laughs> so I'm not going to say anything. Um, I, I can talk, and we will get to this. There's some there's some elements later in this episode where I'll kind of insert my own personal uh, um, interaction with uh, one of the cases um, because uh, I, I just don't think it's uh, relevant to um, the parameters of uh, a non-fiction piece that we're working on. There's obviously tons of information you have to decide what to include, what to leave out. And there are some, there are some elements that I just know we're not ever going to cover. So, and this is one of them. It's, um, <clears throat> it's of tertiary interest, um, but would be interesting to anyone who's been listening for the last uh, 46 episodes. So I'll, I'll include it here, but um, you know, main pieces of information, uh, main developments, um, um, that are fundamental and primary, I kind of can't do. And, and it, it's actually, that got me to, to thinking about this. There's, um, you know, this this piece of information is so, uh, um, uh, as I say, foundational. And you know, it's, you know, there's always when you when you when you find that one little element, there's there's such an adrenaline rush. Um, for instance, you know, I'll tell you some, you know, some of the times where that really happened. I think initially, you know, um, when when I discovered that the cold cases of uh, of uh, Manon's Bay and uh, and Louise Cameron, you know, one of the things, you know, when I kind of found those newspaper ar- archives stories about them. You know, they were immediately, it was like, okay, this is interesting. They're, they happened in the same place and at the same time. But then as you develop it, you you think you're going to hit a wall. What, what you're expecting to hear is like, oh, didn't you know those cases were solved years ago? Or uh, didn't you know, um, you know, it, it was a domestic issue and, uh, the, you know, one of the parents killed the children. Um, but so to find, you know, as you're developing it, you know, eventually that no, they're still unsolved homicides is, is like just kind of, um, as, as I say, it just makes your heart race and that confirmation, you know, another one is, uh, the, uh, you know, knowing for, for a decade, um, that an artist rendering existed of a rapist in the Sherbrooke area and, uh, in this, like, uh, I believe 1981, 82, um, and tantalizingly not, you know, being able to find it. And then finally last fall, finding the photo, um, through archives. And when, you know, another thing where you're expecting it and you'll see the, the, the photo and it doesn't look like any of the suspects you've developed, but in this case, it's like, Oh my fucking God, um, the guy looks exactly like uh, Luke Gregoire. I mean, right down to the the bowl cut of his hair. So those things are are, are really um, 
fascinating and, uh, uh, um, you know, the rush that you feel when you're, when you're in pursuit and, you know, you're, you're contacting people for confirmation on things and, and expecting a wall and they don't, they don't put it up. What they say is, I think you're, you're on to something is, is quite astonishing. So, on to 1987, and, and let's uh, frame it as it was framed in, in the last episode. So, the French-language newspaper La Presse uh, publishes an article on Saturday, December 11th, 1999, stating that there are still these um, eight unsolved murders in the area from 1987 to 1995. So, they've been... They've been cold for 12 years, um, and uh, there's still no resolution. So they're, you know, they're shaking the tree again to, to try and get the public's involvement and, and engagement in these affairs. So of the eight, let's start with the first two in 19, uh, 1987. And the first is of uh, Liette Gibb. And... Um, so, so Liette is a, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, I have a cold I'm getting over, so you're going to hear me uh, clear my throat quite a, quite a bit here. So uh, <laughs> bear with me. So, so Liette is 18 years old, and um, she, she lives um, on uh, Rue Notre Dame in, uh, in Laval. Uh, and she's last seen around um, April 25th, 1987, at about 2 o'clock in the afternoon. She, she leaves the home of a friend, uh, excuse me, she leaves the home of a friend who lives on Notre Dame to go home. She, she lives with her parents. Um, April 26th, 1987, and um, uh, she's not seen again. She's she's reported missing, and so that's the spring of '87. Um, this this 18 year old young woman goes goes missing on the island of Laval, and and boom, she vanishes, and we we hear nothing of her for the summer. So the second case, Sophie Landry. Landry's 17 years old, and. Um, she uh, on weekends she she spends the weekends with her parents and her parents live in La Prairie, Quebec, which is just on the south shore of the the island of Montreal, just off the the island. But during weekdays, um, she's at a, um, a, a a teenage detention facility in Saint Hyacinth, which is about um, well, it's just a, it's just east of of. Uh, Montreal. It's n- northeast from La Prairie, about midway between between uh, Montreal and Sherbrooke. So um, on the um, on uh, Sunday, August twenty third, uh, nineteen eighty seven, uh, Landry leaves um, her parents' home 
to go back to this detention facility. She takes a bus to the Longay um, Central Bus Terminal, where she need would then need to get a transfer in order to take her to Saint to Saint Hyacinth to the that facility. Um, outside of the bus station, she runs into a, a friend who is is also um, a resident at the facility, and um, they 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 talk for a brief moment and. Uh, Sophie says, well, I got to go inside to get my, my ticket. The friend says, do you want me to come with you? She says, no, 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 that's all right. I'll, I'll go by myself. She uh, enters the bus terminus. Um, and then from there, that's it. She disappears. She disappears. And this is um, um, any time between, say, five and, and seven o'clock. So the next morning, uh, Monday, August 24th, a farmer by the name of uh, Luc uh, Duval, he's, um, and uh, he, he, his farm is in uh, Saint-Roche-Dachelin, uh, which is about 40 kilometers north of Montreal. He's on his tractor, and he's, he's riding on the dirt road between corn rows and a cornfield. And he sees uh, along the dirt road what he thinks is someone sleeping. He gets a little closer and he sees that it's the naked body of a young woman, uh, clothing and belongings strewn along beside the, the body. Um, uh, Duval immediately calls uh, the police. It's a Sarté de Québec's case because it's uh, in, in a northern uh, region, it's a rural region. Sarté de Québec arrive, um, and they determined that uh, Sophie Landry uh, had been raped and stabbed 173 times. Um, so from that point, the Sarté de Québec backtrack. They tried to determine um, what were the events that led to this, what, what was Sophie doing in, in, the, in her final 24 hours. So again, they determine that she's at the bus station. Um, and then from there, it's speculative. Um, there's no actual indication that she ever bought a bus ticket to St. Hyacinth. Um, there's the possibility that uh, Sophie didn't have enough money. Um, around 7 o'clock, uh, a male a friend of hers received a call from Landry, presumably from the bus station where she was... Um, explaining to to him that she had no intention of going back to St. Hyacinth. Uh, it's speculated that possibly uh, her intention was to to visit a, a friend um, named uh, Kimberly Lang, who lived about approximately five kilometers from the bus station. In fact, it's also speculated that uh, Landry walked to Lang's house, but because... Uh, uh, when she rang the bell, uh, Lang wasn't home and, and she left. So at that point, possibly two tracks. Her assailant picks her up at the bus terminus, you know, is trolling it, stalking it, uh, found, you know, someone who uh, in need of possibly a lift or, or something more. Um, or possibly um, the, the assailant met her on the road to Kimberly Lang's house um, and and possibly she was hitchhiking and he picked her up, or or possibly um, uh, uh, 
abducted her um, using the force of a, 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 the knife and forced her into the car. The Sartre de Quebec also speculate um, that uh, probably uh, Landry knew her assailant. They had some sort of prior relationship. And um, they also determined that uh, uh, that uh, she was murdered uh, sometime between midnight and 12.30. So what, what really is... Um, uh, not known is the blackout period between the phone call to the male friend at 7 p.m. and uh, the five hours leading up to her, her her death. And one final note, the police find DNA um, uh, of the assailant on Laundrie's clothing. So now, linking back to Liette Gibb, that fall, 1987, October 25th, um, an individual is walking through the woods in uh, L'Assomption, Quebec, and he finds the remains of uh, Liette Gibb in the woods uh, just at the base of a tree. And for geographical purposes, uh, L'Assomption is also 40 kilometers north of Montreal, just like Saint-Rache de Achelin. And those two villages are approximately uh, 20 kilometers apart from each other. La L'Assomption to the east, uh, Saint-Rache-Dachelin to the, to, the, to the west. Now, 15 years pass. 15 years these cases uh, remain cold. So in, within that time, we have a series of murders of other murders, the six other murders, which we'll get to uh, between 87, 95, 1999, La Presse publishes the article trying to shake the trees and, and get some movement around these, these eight cold cases. And then finally, uh, in, in February 2002, the the Sarté de Québec makes the, the break in the Landry case. And um, I will, I'll just read this. This is a, an article from uh, Mon the Montreal Gazette dated uh, Valentine's Day, February 14th, 2002. Police on Montreal's South Shore say they've made a breakthrough in a brutal 15-year-old murder case. Guy Cruteau. 45, has been charged with the first-degree murder of a teenage girl who disappeared at a subway station in the summer of 1987. Sophie Landry, 17, was found in a cornfield northeast of Montreal the next day. She had been stabbed 173 times, according to the police. The girl was also raped. In addition to murder... Croteau has been charged with a series of more recent sexual assaults. He's accused of tricking several teenage girls into his vehicle, attacking them at knife point, then dropping them off at their homes, warning them not to contact the police. In another sexual assault case, Croteau abducted a 10-year-old girl at knife point in 2000, after pretending he needed her help to look for her lost dog. He sodomized the girl after taking her to a wooded area 
a Sarté de Québec investigation dubbed Project Probe, ended with his arrest and found Cruteau, who was working as a janitor at a high school at the time, was possibly involved in other sexual assaults and abductions on the South Shore between 1995 and 2000. Now, I'm not really sure... Um, the basis of the 95 to 2000 timeline. Um, certainly that the Sarté de Québec's timeline uh, puts him off the hook, according to them, for any of the cases that we will talk about um, going forward, which is curious because, um, you know, when you think of it, Cruteau... Um, uh, 45 means he was born in 1957. Um, clearly, uh, uh, you know, even uh, get to this, but uh, I, I considered Cruteau uh, at Cruteau one time in the Teresa's case. Um, I can't exactly remember why I dismissed it. I, I think it was the stabbing that it was like it was a different modus operandi or something, but. Um, but still, um, you know, Croteau was uh, in 1978-21, um, certainly young. Um, but when you consider the fact that in 78, Luc Gregoire was 18, um, certainly a, a possibility. Um, and I, I think the other thing is, you know, clearly if, you, if you're flat-foot amateur, um, you, you know, sleuth... Uh, doesn't take an idiot to kind of go, well, you know, 173 stab wounds, that's quite an escalation of violence, you know? How did he start? Because he didn't just start stabbing somebody 173 times. And I don't think he just started with these random kitty diddler things, uh, you know, my doggie's lost, this this kind of stuff, diddle someone, and, and, then, and then, you know, the next stage is stabbing someone 173 times. Seems It seems a little strange. I think probably the reason I, I discounted Trudeau is because at the time that I was looking at him, the police told told me he didn't do it. And at that point, I was so naive, I would, I would essentially believe, you know, believe anything, anything that they, they told me, which, of course, now we know is completely um, ridiculous. Now, as part of this project probe, um, and I should first say this, the reason they nailed uh, Cruteau is because of the DNA. As I said, they found DNA on uh, Landry's clothing, and through that they were able to make a match, and that's how they, they did it. And I imagine with the three other assaults he was charged with, it might have been a combination of, of um, a DNA or, or they tagged him, you know, in a lineup or through photos or something like this. But this is where myself, my, my own story got inserted with this. So this article um, in the Gazette came out February 2002. Well, a month later, uh, March 2002, was when I was in uh, uh, Sherbrooke for the first time since I was a child uh, doing my own investigations. Um, and I, me I remember quite clearly... It was either in the newspaper, or uh, it had to be in the newspaper, seeing this this um, this story about Project Probe. Um, they they had um, photos of of Cruteau, and the guy the guy was like a chameleon. They had like ten photos of Cruteau, and all ten photos look, he looked like a completely different guy. 
you know, you'd put glasses on his face, it would change him. There's there's one where he's wearing like a cowboy hat. You know, there's there's one where he looks like Brian Ferry. There's like another one you turn around, he, you know, he looks like David Bowie. It's like, who the hell is this guy? Um, so I, I remember that quite um, clearly. Uh, and also because this this began, began um, I at that time, I was in Sherbrooke uh, that March, not only with my brother, and but also with Patricia Pearson, the investigative journalist for the National Post newspaper. And we were all doing our, our, our initial um, work around these kind of things. We we. We hadn't yet learned of uh, Dubay and uh, Manon Dubay and Louise Cameron, um, but we d- did um, that weekend determine that th- this was the epiphany where we went. Well, this is not a drug overdose. This is not a boating accident. It's a murder. Uh, <laughs> um, so um, I remember that and, and seeing that article. Now, this is you know as a side track and um you know this is when in my early days of amateur sleuthing because we were going through archives of uh champlain college and looking up old information we we came upon a directory of of staff you know it was sort of it was in like one of the student newspapers, and it sort of was like, here is your staff for the coming 1978 year. And it had photos and descriptions of, you know, all the people we've talked about in the past, Gene Edisford, Dr. Madsen, you know, he's he's the director, she's the director of residence. I think I described once before there was, there was a place for Stuart Peacock, but it was just a big black emptiness. They didn't have a photo of him. And one of the photos they had was of this guy named Guy Cloutier, um, and it said he was a he he was worked as a lab assistant in in the Johnson Building. I believe that's the was the chemistry or physics building. Um, and because the Sarté de Québec was appealing to the public uh, on uh, Cruteau, they wanted to see if they could nail him for other crimes. It's one of the first times um, I remember seeing their... I think they had just unveiled their website uh, prior to... I think just just at the beginning of 2002 was when they had a website. And one of the first things they had up there was this composite of Cruteau. So we found this guy named Guy Cloutet, who we made ourselves believe, I think that's the right way to put it, looked like... <laughs> like Guy, Guy Croteau. Um This guy kind of had like a loose perm, this kind of um, large featured with a pair of glasses. Now in the in the Croteau composite, there was none with him, I believe, wearing glasses. So we drew a pair of glasses on one of the composite pictures and said, Guy Cloutier is Guy Cruteau, right? Um, I also also remember, um, you know, they had a hotline, and at that time I didn't know they were just looking at a window from ninety five to two thousand, but I, I did the math and said the Cruteau was twenty one and seventy eight, so it's a possibility. So I phoned the hotline, and the guy who 
return my call was was Mark Lapin. He was uh, heading up um, Project Probe. And, you know, if you've listened, uh, Lapin later did profiling training and is now the head of the uh, Sarté de Quebec's cold, cold case unit. Someone who, um, not, I haven't recently, but very often in the course of the last 15 years, I've interacted with him uh, on several times. So this was my first uh, encounter with uh, with uh, Le Pin, and, and we thought he was going to solve, you know, all our problems. You know, that we thought this is it. We're going to wrap this up really quickly. It's Cruteau. Cruteau looks like Cloutier. You know, just like that's it. Aren't we geniuses? Work's done. Case closed. Let's go home. Right. And so somehow we managed to find, we tracked down a, 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 an address and phone number for Guy Cloutier and found that he was living still in the eastern townships. So we said, ah, I, we got it. We got it. If we phone his residence and like his wife picks up or his child picks up or his parents pick up and and they say, we don't know where he is or you know, he hasn't been seen in years. We were like, we we got our guy. We haven't seen him because he's in jail right now because he's 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 Guy Cruteau because we're brilliant. So I remember, I remember phoning the number. You know, and your your heart's kind of racing, and you don't know quite what you're going to say, but you're just you're improvising and you're winging it. And three rings in, the phone picks up. Hello. And I said, is this Guy Cloutier? And the guy goes, why? <laughs> and I panic and I immediately hang up, right? Because it <laughs> can't be Cruteau because Cruteau's in prison. So that was, um, that was our first folly in um, amateur sleuthing. And uh, I think... I, in a, an abbreviated fashion, I've told this story before, but um, that's where the lesson came from. I think we related this story to the serial profiler, Kim Rosmo, who immediately, his lesson was, don't go chasing suspects. Cut forward to 2004, uh, Croteau's trial. So, which you would think would be um, a slam dunk. I mean, 173 times, for goodness sakes. But um, the, the Superior Court Justice James Brunton, uh, for one thing, he he doesn't um, allow the jury to to, to be aware that uh, Croteau is also awaiting a trial on multiple charges of sexual assault, forcible confinement, and robbery, involving ten other females from the age of 10 to 18. And I believe these are in addition to the other three. Um, uh, Brunton also does not allow testimony from Mark Lepin, who by, by now is a profiler. Um, and what, what, they're, what the, they're getting at is uh, the defending attorney, uh, Mark LaBelle, 
is arguing to the uh, to the jury that um, certainly Croteau might have might have raped her, and that's how the, the you know sperm etc. got on her clothing. But that doesn't mean he he killed her. You know, in 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 his opinion, uh, she she could have been raped earlier, and then there was a separate event, and somebody else stabbed her um, one hundred and seventy three times. So the thing is. Um, the thing is up in the air, right? Um, but finally, he's um, he's convicted. He's 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 sentenced to um, twenty five years uh, without the possibility of, of parole, which we know in in Canada means virtually nothing. Um, I think I read an article recently there. It said uh, he's eligible for parole in 2027. So that, that quickly got thrown out the window. We'll get to that. But um, immediately when Cruteau hears the, this, um, he's convicted and, and, and sentenced. He tries to he tries to slit his wrists right there in the in the in the courtroom. Um, fairly dramatic, and uh, but anyway, he's he's. He's put away. Away. He serves time in a, or is serving time in a, a minimum security facility, um, in the in the Quebec region. Um, so, let's dovetail back to a couple of things that I I think are are interesting about this. Um, the the first is, you know, clearly when this project probe came out, um, you know, in, as in all cases in Quebec, they're trying to nail him for other crimes, but they get him for these sexual assaults, not for other murders, which is curious. It's it's hard to fathom that he was responsible for this one singular murder to the maximum extreme. So the question is, how could they not have um, uh, charged him with, with other murders for which he most certainly would have been responsible and again i think we come back to our old friend criminal investigative failures systemic justice failures well uh, yeah they got them on the the you know they got lucky with the evidence with with laundry um just as they got very very fortunate with evidence in the case of this serial killer william fife but we don't know the the extent of of evidence preservation in in the the other cases maybe they lost the dna as they have in so many other cases maybe they poorly processed the dna um or the evidence if if they in fact had it maybe they're just not good enough investigators to have been able to to um tag him with the additional murders it's um and and then it certainly in the case of there's uh there's no way Cruteau is going to roll over and and to confess um, to anything because uh, even a sentence of life imprisonment, which is 25 years, without the possibility of parole, which is conditional, it's not, um, it's not a sure thing. You always, there's always a chance you will be let out, as we learned in the in, in the promise of a Luke Gregoire, who was promised that he would never be released, and then he was he was being processed for release up until the time of his death in 2015. 
But some of the things I think that that I find curious um, about this and the other cases. So, as we've said, that the, the bodies of uh, of Landry and then of 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 Gibb, who at this point is still a cold case in two thousand and four, and we'll get to that. So they're found in, um, you, you know, they're they're abducted in in Laval and uh, Longay, and we've heard those names before. We have many cases in Laval in the 70s. Of course, Longay um, is the site of the Sharon Pryor dump site in 75. So close to the vicinity of Montreal, but the dump sites are to the north. In fact, the, the two dump sites, if, if I say that 20 clicks over from L'Assomption is Saint-Roche-d'Achelin, well, another 20 clicks over, and you run right into Saint-Calixte, which is where in uh, 1977, uh, Jocelyne Hull's body was found, also abducted, well, directly from the island of Montreal in the, uh, in the, uh, down by the old Munich uh, Tavern in downtown Montreal. So not, I'm not, that is less about Cruteau is responsible for all three crimes. It is more to do with you know, over time and decades, these criminals, I believe, learn from each other and, and do a lot of the, the same things. Jurisdictional confusion. You, know, you, you, do the, you, you do the abduction in one place um, and you, you put the body in another place. So that's going on. Um, similarities, uh, if you skip forward to 2007 to the Cedrica Provencher case, a similar technique is used. Um, in the case, we know that uh, we're told that uh, Curteau, um abducts a 10-year-old for sexual assault uh, using the ruse of I lost my dog. This is exactly the same ruse that is used again in 2007 on Cedrica Provence, who is also 10 years old. Um, there's somebody going around the neighborhood and saying, have you seen my lost dog? So these tricks, these, these, these tactics are age old. We know that they are, and they're, they're, used, they're used repeatedly, which is interesting how the decades reflect and inform each other and, and speak to each other back and back and forth. So we jump forward to uh, August 17th, 2013, to the summer of 2013. And uh, Cruteau is granted a, a brief uh, leave um, from, from prison. Um, from a, it's a federal penitentiary to attend the funeral of a relative, which is understood. It's, that's not parole, but it, it's still, it is freedom. Um, and this is a, an article from August 17th, 2013, by the Gazette. Uh, great crime writer, Paul Cherry. And I'll, I'll just read a, little, read a little bit from it, because it is informative of the, uh, the Quebec uh, rehabilitation system. It says, and this is referring to the, the relative who, whose funeral he's attending, the deceased was only referred to in the decision as someone Cruteau should consider a model for him to follow if he sets his goals towards rehabilitation. Now, right there, that, that implies somewhat that he will be someday released. 
Um, and then it, uh, it it goes on to to say um, the parole decision reveals Cruteau is detained at a medium security penitentiary somewhere in Quebec, and that he co- collaborates well with corrections staff, but he is still considered a high risk reoffender. Um, potential with little potential of being paroled, which won't be an option until sometime after 2027. The decision states Cruteau meets regularly with a psychiatrist and psychologist to deal with mental health problems. In 2004, he was diagnosed as suffering from chronic depression. He tried to kill himself in the courtroom while he was convicted of the murder and from paranoia. He is also on a waiting list to take part in programs to treat sexual deviance and drug addiction. And the interesting thing is that you 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 would have to to wait for those programs in a rehabilitation process. To address the threat he posed, the parole board ordered that Cruteau's leave to the funeral home be limited to less than eight hours with 30 minutes for lunch. The board also ordered that he be escorted by two armed guards at all times and transported in a vehicle used to transfer inmates. The board also required that Croteau be kept in handcuffs and leg shackles while at the funeral home. Considering all the measures foreseen to constrain you, your case management team is of the opinion that the risk can be managed adequately during the escorted leave that they recommended. The board noted in its decision, all of the necessary verifications were done relative to the victims and they raised no particular preoccupation with the leave. So, well, that's good. So they actually notified the victims that they were going to take this action in advance of doing it, which um, is somewhat rare from what I, from what I know. Um, in the past, when I've heard of these instances, uh, the victims are rarely notified in fact, the first time they ever learn of these things is is in a newspaper. I'm going to leave it there uh, for this week, with the exception of the the uh, the obvious coda to all of this. So, what of uh, Liette Gibb? Uh, well, Liette Gibb is still a, a cold case. In fact, her um, her case is is on the Sarté de Québec's website, along with my sister's, along with many of the other cases, not all of them, that we've discussed um, through these uh, series of, of podcasts. Um, and it's still, still it's still cold after all these years, 80, 87, 97, 17, 30, 30 years. 30 years has passed um, since that. Still cold. Say a prayer for Liette Gibb. Now, um, some some things. Uh, I, on my uh, post on my um, website teresalor.com, and pr- I'll probably do this also on the the Teresa Lore, um, who killed Teresa, a Facebook page, and on the, the, the tre- at Teresa Lore, to Twitter feed uh, photos of both Gibb and Landry, and the the ten photo composite of. Uh, of um, Guy Crouteau. Uh, I will also post a picture of the the lab assistant, uh, Guy Cloutier, um, who was not a serial killer. Apparently, he just so happened 
to be an assistant in the chemistry building at Champlain College in Lenoxville, same chemistry building where my sister happened to take chemistry classes, just a coincidence. Um, and also there's, um, there's a, a Quebec, uh, you know, like a true crime docudrama series uh, from, from the day called Dossier Mystère. Um, and they, they do about a, t- a 12 minute segment on, um, on, um, Sophie Landry before uh, Cruteau is found. So it's 12 minutes about how she disappeared, how she died, if the public knows anything, etc., etc. I don't think you have to speak. Obviously, it's in French. You you don't have to speak or understand, comprehend French in order to to comprehend what's going on. You know, like like America's Most Wanted, like like any of these shows, uh, it... um, it's a series of reenactments, so you get to see an actress playing her at the bus station, et cetera, et cetera. Interesting, interestingly enough, though, um, they they get some of the the real players from the case to to reenact the parts. For instance, the the farmer uh, uh, Luc Duval actually reenacts uh, himself. You know, he's driving a tractor down into the cornfield and seeing the body. So they, they, and then they interview him briefly. Uh, the lead investigator, uh, Gilles Leduc from the Sarté de Québec, he's interviewed, but also they get him to, to reenact um, the, the discovery of the crime scene, the processing of the, the crime scene. So, you know, if you've got 12 minutes and you, and you like this kind of stuff and you're kind of bored with the, you know, with the Americanized versions you've seen of these, you might want to have a look at that, which I'll post on the website. So, uh, with with that, uh, th- that's our episode this week, um, um, involving uh, of the eight cases from from uh, eighty seven to ninety five. The first two, Lynette Gibb, uh, Sophie Landry, will come back uh, next week in the following weeks, and make our way through the other six and we'll go from there. Uh, so thank you very much for listening this this week. Uh, this has been Who Killed Teresa? I'm your host, John Allure. Have yourselves a great, great afternoon. did it again. Verizon was just named America's most reliable network by Root Metrics for the 16th time in a row, proving once again that nobody builds networks like Verizon builds networks. That's why we're building 5G right. That's why there's only one best network. Verizon. 
best and most reliable based on root metrics reports from second half 2013 to first half 2021 of three operators on all network types combined, not specific to 5G networks. We did it again. Verizon was just named America's most reliable network by root metrics for the 16th time in a row, proving once again that nobody builds networks like Verizon builds networks. That's why we're building 5G right. That's why there's only one best network, Verizon. Best and most reliable based on root metrics reports from second half 2013 to first half 2021 of three operators on all network types combined, not specific to 5G networks.